Welcome to Pediatrics Now. Cases, updates, and discussions for the busy pediatric practitioner. I'm your host, Holly Waymont. I work for UT Health San Antonio's Department of Pediatrics. In this podcast, we explore how we can provide the best, most cutting-edge, compassionate care for children. We hope to give you a unique and behind-the-scenes edge from our expert guests. The American Psychological Association has issued recommendations for guiding teenagers' use of social media. According to NPR, the advisory released this week is aimed at teens, parents, teachers, and policymakers. Joining me today here in the podcast studio is Dr. Crystal Robinson. She's been practicing as a psychologist for 10 years. Her specialty is working with children who have chronic medical conditions. She's the Associate Chair for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion for the Department of Pediatrics at UT Health San Antonio. Dr. Robinson, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. It's so great to meet you finally in person Tell us about this new recommendation, and this is a first, I understand, for the American Psychological Association. Yeah, so this is really a a very pivotal moment in psychology, and I think in society in general. You know, we're just, we're sort of, um, you know, on the heels of the COVID pandemic, where there was so much focus on technology and living in this virtual space because we all were sort of it was a requirement right it was necessary Um, and I think that you know the momentum and the stress of that period also has led to just more and more social media use with our children with our teens even for us as adults we find that we live in this hybrid world. You know, if you think about your day-to-day meetings, some of them are virtual, some of them are in person, some of them are sort of in this hybrid format. And so being online has really become a cornerstone of the work that we do, of how we relate to other people. And that is also true for social media. Uh, It is a space where we rely on catching up with friends and family, where we look for connection. But there can definitely be some challenges associated with overusing social media or using it in manners that can be harmful. And these recommendations, uh, one of the big ones, it says as parents, we should be there with the child watching what they're doing on social media up until about age 15. Is that really realistic? So I think really the, the message there is that we should be having some constant access and contact with our children's social media platforms. We want to know what they're posting. We want to know what they find interesting. Adolescence is really a time for significant brain development. There are lots of changes happening physically, neurologically. The body and the mind are changing, and there are lots of changes that are happening that are not visible. It's a time for the early maturation and many social skills to develop. And that age group, that adolescent age group, is really a critical stage. And so we really have to be aware of sort of the ins and outs of what they're learning, how they're understanding new information, what they're taking in as real. Um, And oftentimes at that age, children are not able to discern between what is real versus what is sort of curated for me online. And those harmful effects that really are curated for us and our teenagers um, include depression, anxiety, loneliness, suicide even? Yes, yes. There's actually research to support the fact that 
um, when we look at sort of online bullying versus offline bullying, particularly for children that are already vulnerable or at greater risk for some of these psychiatric challenges, we see that online bullying can have significant profound effects on those children and actually can increase the risk of developing problems like depression and anxiety. And social media is designed to keep us hooked, right? So if you're looking at something on suicide, then more will come up in the feed, right? Exactly. There are, there are many algorithms out there for social media use. And actually, the research in this area supports the idea that the more children see harmful, you know, whether it's cyberbullying, cyber hate, um, hateful or racist statements online or other harmful um, self-harm behaviors, you know, very restrictive dieting or excessive exercising, they are more likely to adopt those habits and beliefs and behaviors in real time because they are sort of mirroring what they're seeing online. So for our pediatric practitioner listeners, what advice do you have? What should we be telling our patients, you know, in that five to 10 minute exam visit where there's so much to cover? It's a great question. I think it starts first with, as adults, we all need to develop more of what is known as sort of digital health literacy. What that means is really just understanding um, the differences between things like misinformation and disinformation. We see a lot of both in the social media world. So misinformation is, is sort of false or, or inaccurate information that is spread, but the but the, inten- the it's not intentional, right? It's sort of like you know, this statistic that maybe was inflated, but you didn't know it was inflated when you shared that, right? Versus disinformation, which is really false and inaccurate information that is sort of purposefully put out there and perpetuated in in an intent to be harmful and, and deceptive. So I think as adults, we have a responsibility to first put the burden on ourselves to become more digitally literate, if you will, understand that there are differences between what we see on social media and what what reality is, um, and really work to model that for our children. And so I think for pediatricians that are seeing families in that, you know, well-child visit uh, or for their annual exam, I think it's important to say if a parent brings up, hey, I've noticed that my my teen is spending more time online, they seem very irritable, um, you know, they, they're constantly gaming, they're not sleeping well, these are usually signs that maybe there is a little bit more going on to be concerned about related to their social media use and access. So there are these clinical signs, if you will, some isolation from family and friends, you know, preferring, almost preferring to spend time with their game system or their social media platforms instead of spending time with family, um, almost craving or a desire to get back to the social media um, when they are separated from it, Um, spending time online at really late hours of the night. You know, we really should, again, as adults as well, we really should limit our social media and our screen time use at least an hour before bed. And that is also true for the adolescent brain that's still developing these children still need about eight or more hours of sleep. And when they are spending that much time online before bed, it actually disrupts their sleep cycle. Um, So, you know, if a parent is sharing, hey, my child's having trouble falling asleep or staying asleep or they're very irritable in the morning or I find that they're gaming first thing in the morning uh, or getting online first thing in the morning or their grades are changing or suddenly the relationships are shifting in their world, those may be signs that maybe we need to 
address the social media use and the technology use. And this report, it, it's saying that it could even cause depression, anxiety, and loneliness, social media. So an otherwise healthy child could develop depression because of the social media that they're looking at? So what happens is, again, because the brain is still developing and children and youth are still sort of learning what they like about themselves, what they like about others, who they are in relation to other people, what they see on social media can often serve as a model or an aspiration, and they may find themselves comparing themselves, right? So if they're seeing, you know, beautiful images of um, that likely have been curated or touched up in some way, right? If they're seeing these images online and then they're sort of comparing that to how they look, that can create some self-esteem issues that can later lead to some of these other mood symptoms that we're talking about. Um, but also just in general, you know, the more we see uh, others, we have this natural tendency as humans to engage in social comparison. So even if you're seeing, some, maybe it's not body image, maybe you're just seeing a friend online who's having a lovely, you know, family weekend. And perhaps for that teen, maybe maybe their parents are separated and maybe, you know, dad's not in the home. Seeing that image as beautiful and well intended as it may be for the audience that it was you know, posted for, that could lead to some feelings of sort of isolation or sadness or maybe questioning their own situation. So you can see how these sort of feelings and thoughts can emerge when um, our youth are looking at these images and these posts online. Yes, I can't imagine going through that. Like when I was in high school, we didn't have social media. Um, like my daughter the other day, she was looking and she saw a group of her friends that had all gotten together and and she was not had not been invited to that small gathering. And just that, I mean, that's painful mm -hmm. to feel left out. Sure, absolutely. Even in a situation like that, right? So, you know, that could have led to her thinking, well, gosh, do they still want to be friends with me? Or I wonder why I didn't get invited. It may lead to her sort of communicating differently or interacting differently with that group. So, but we don't know the circumstances or the parameters of why that group met or how they got together. But we, we know, all we know is what we see. Our mind makes an interpretation about that and we place a value or a judgment or an assignment on that. So that's a really great example. Well, and I remember a friend who was going through a terrible time in her marriage, but her posts online were like, my husband is so loyal and I have the best husband in the world <laughs> and they're smiling. You know, so a lot of times what we're seeing, it's either a snapshot of someone's life or it might be a touched up version mm -hmm. to put it lightly, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, the intention in those instances is good, right? People want to put their best foot forward, so to speak. Um, but it can be as well intentioned as that may be. It can be misleading to, you know, the vulnerable eye who is really just looking for connection and understanding and just looking to feel supported by others. And then they see these images that don't align with their personal lived experience, and that can cause some distress potentially. Crystal, can cyberbullying be worse than in-person bullying? Cyberbullying is incredibly dangerous for many reasons. You know, for one, it often happens sort of in this silo 
we don't always know what our children are seeing online or what is being said to them online or what type of pictures are being posted about them online. And so there's much less supervision, if you will, of the of the cyberbullying experience, which is, again, why it's so important for parents to sort of be monitoring and overseeing social media use. Um, now, in-person bullying, offline bullying, if you will, is also incredibly distressing and can also lead to some concerning mental health outcomes for those youth. But there's actually research that supports the idea that when children see cyberbullying online or cyber hate or, or, you know, hate speech or racist rhetoric online, not only does that affect them, but it also affects other people that see those images. So the audience, right, the other sort of other users, if you will, that interface with that, it can be harmful to both to both individuals. And so there are definitely some real risks with cyberbullying and, and um, seeing some of the images that are online. And that's why I think it's so important for parents to regularly monitor what their children are posting, what their children are commenting on. It could even be as simple as something that they like, right? Let's say they liked something on Instagram that is um, hate speech or, or a form of cyberbullying toward a peer. They may not even feel dislike or disdain for that person, but, but simply putting that like and assigning their name to liking that post really aligns them with this cyberbullying, and that can also be harmful. And so I think, you know, even teaching our children that something that seems as harmless as a like or a repost or a retweet can also be dangerous to themselves and potentially to their peers. Do you think, based on this recommendation, we should be telling our the parents and caregivers of our patients, though, to try up until age 15 to really be there with with the child when he or she is on social media? You know, I do think that there is something really important about allowing a child to have an, a d developmentally appropriate level of autonomy. It, there's, it, there's something to be said about trust in the parent-child relationship. But that trust does not happen in a vacuum, and it doesn't occur overnight. So when you're first allowing your child exposure to social media, you don't really know how they're going to use it or what their favorite pages will be or just sort of, and they really don't know either when they're first starting out. Um, and so regular sort of check-ins, if you will, once a week, uh, maybe every few days about, hey, I noticed that you posted this. I, I actually encourage parents to be friends, as, as terrifying as it is, I'm sure, to the teenagers that I work with, but <laughs> I actually encourage um, some of my parents to be friends with their, their youth on social media just to see sort of what, what they're sharing or what they're posting. And even if that, obviously, that could, you know, lead to teenagers being a little bit more careful about what they post because they know mom or grandma is watching. But even if you don't go to that extreme, I do think that having a regular, frank conversation about what have you seen on social media this week that was interesting? This could be a conversation over the dinner table. You know, what did you see this week that was interesting or that piqued your interest or that concerned you or that frightened you or that made you have questions? just opening the dialogue in a consistent manner, but also checking their use to make sure that they are safely engaging. And I think what will happen is over time, as the child develops more 
sort of uh, intellectual capacity, if you will, more discernment as they get older, more of that digital literacy that we're talking about, then gradually you can offer them a little bit more autonomy. But in these very early stages, you know, particularly preteens and early adolescents, you want to monitor and supervise as much as possible. And I think it's really important to be transparent with your child about that to say that, hey, I'm not I'm not trying to sort of like micromanage your friendships or I don't I'm not here to make you miserable or make social media use not fun. But I, it is my job to protect you and to make sure that you're safe and to make sure that you're making strong connections online. And so making it a regular part of your interactions with your child and with your teen, I think, is really the way to normalize it and make it a consistent part of sort of family conversation. Because it's here whether we like it or not. Absolutely. And it's not going anywhere, right? So absolutely. Well, and as a mom and a former journalist, I'm shocked at how little regulation there is over social media. It just seems like almost anything could pop up on that feed, on our feed, on our children's feed. Absolutely. It's, it's very concerning. And, you know, even the sort of subtle accidentally liking a post or opening a link can lead to, again, these algorithms that, you know, will bring more of that content to your page. And so children and teenagers may unintentionally, unknowingly open the floodgates to content that is harmful that maybe they didn't even realize was going to be. And so, Again, that's why that monitoring is so important. But the other thing I want to mention about that is we talked earlier about parents coaching and, and modeling this behavior, but I can't emphasize enough how important that is. We should also be practicing good social media time limits as adults. It's really not, you know, I can't tell you how many times I get on the elevator with someone and they're just kind of scrolling their phone and, and mm -hmm. you know, that can be harmless to some degree, but then you look up and that person has missed their elevator uh, stop or, you know, they're walking in the hallway and their head is down mm -hmm. because they're sort of buried in their phone. We all have those tendencies and those behaviors. And so even as adults, we have to rethink and reshift how we think about social media and sort of reframe our relationship with social media. The ultimate goal, the original goal of social media was really to foster connection, to give people access to each other in, you know, positive, meaningful ways. You know, that family member that lives, you know, three states over and you only get to see them once every other year. Social media is a great place to catch up and see what their kids are doing or the, you know, the recent graduation of a cousin or a friend. Um, and so that's really the essence, I think, of social media. It's not to be, it's not meant to be this place where we get our, our, um, you know, our, all of our news for the day and all of our social interactions for the day, but it really should have, should be a place where we monitor um, kind of the information that we're getting and also critique the information that we're getting. So if you do rely on social media for your news or for your daily sort of uh, what's going on in the world, make sure that you're sort of relying on credible websites and, and reputable health sources for the information that you're getting and just being careful about reposting things that you don't know for sure that are reliable or that have been fact-checked. So again, as adults, I place a big portion of the responsibility on us to model this behavior and then to do supportive education with our youth about it. That's great advice. Our, our children are watching us, whether we realize it or not. Absolutely. Absolutely. And this can help us in our personal lives as well in this busy world of high stress, high burnout, medical career. If, if we limit our social media... 
Yes, there is really nothing that compares to an in-person social interaction. I can't emphasize enough or get, tell you how much I get joy from having an in-person meeting compared to a virtual meeting. Um, you know, we rely so much on technology and it definitely has its role and its use and it's important, but there is nothing like that in-person real connection. And that's really where our children are also going to practice social skills, develop critical thinking skills, really lean into building a relationship with someone. So as fun as those relationships online and those interactions online can be, it does not take the place of a meaningful in-person interaction and relationship. So I think that's also important to be aware of. And even those moments on the elevator saying hello to the other person in the elevator, that eye contact, I mean, those moments are important as well. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. It can really, you know, sometimes it can even set your intention for the day. Let's say you had a really rough drive into work and traffic was really hectic and you're sort of frazzled. Maybe you're late for a meeting. Someone looking up in the elevator and smiling and saying good morning can be a really pleasant way to reset what felt like the beginning of a hectic day. It's very small and subtle, but things like that really can make a difference. And I feel like we can do more if we limit the social media. I, I took a break from social media about a year ago, and I feel like that's what's helped me to develop this podcast. Um, we have more time. It really can take away a lot of your time. Absolutely, absolutely. I've had families share with me that they go on social media holidays, which means, you know, everyone in the family, it's sort of a collective agreement that for the next two weeks or four weeks, we're going to take a break. And I've had some families share, like, at first, they're sort of like, okay, well, what do we do after dinner? Or, you know, what do mm -hmm. we do in the when we're driving to soccer practice, right? But really, it, it offers this opportunity to just reconnect at a human level and to just have real conversations with our children and with our, our partners about life, about what we're going through, about what, what's giving us joy. Um, it really just moves us out of this sort of, again, not always real world, because again, the things we're seeing there are not always representative of real life. So it moves us out of this sort of um, artificial world, if you will, and back into really what matters, you know, just getting back to the basics, if you will. Is it important to set time limits for kids? Absolutely. I, I think the time limits are important because what they teach is um, boundaries. It's sort of a form of like self-regulation, if you will. So children and teens don't have that natural ability to say, hmm, I've been online for an hour. It's probably time to stop, right? They, they haven't developed that capacity. Um, and so placing time limits on their phones um, where there's sort of a pop-up reminder that says, hey, you have five minutes left on Instagram, really does place a, a stop point reminder that, okay, I have to, you know, get back to it now. Unfortunately, we know there are ways to override and bypass those. And I've also heard stories from families of, you know, mom or dad is at work and the child is texting, I just need five more minutes on my, you know, so-and-so app. And so we know that um, kids are going to probably ask for more time and that over time there may be some benefit to allowing them to have a little bit more time for different reasons. But making it a regular routine boundary to have kind of a hard stop point for their social media use I think is very important. Tell me, Crystal, so where do you see patients? So I see patients within hematology oncology clinics at UT Health San Antonio in the University Hospital. So in your practice, how 
how much of a burden is social media when you're talking and working with children? Well, it's very it's very uh, interesting and tricky, actually, because when children are coming in for their chemotherapy infusions, they are often here for several hours. Some of them have to be admitted for their treatment regimen, but many can get their treatment outpatient. But that still means a full clinic day that you're sort of hooked up to an IV with nowhere to go. And so a lot of these kids will bring their tablets and their iPads, and some of them will even bring their game systems from home to try to keep themselves busy. Um, that can be a positive distraction for some kids who maybe have a little bit of needle phobia or they have a little bit of anxiety about the medical visit, just having a social media place to plug in and kind of scroll through TikTok while you're being accessed or, you know, while your infusion is running. But I do find that, you know, I may, I may see a patient at, let's say, 945, and then let's say I stop back by at 1130, and they're kind of still scrolling, you know. So you do see that there is this long period of time where maybe they're spending more time online than they normally would. The problem with that is then they sort of develop almost like a craving for that, right? It becomes, mm -hmm. if we think of anything that feels good and that sort of gets those good neurotransmitters going in our brain, we want more of it. And so then suddenly they're spending more hours on it at home and they're spending time on it before bed. The other thing about the population that I work with is that many of these children are on homebound programs. So they are on sort of a, a condensed, limited school schedule where the teacher comes to the home to teach them during the more intense phases of their, of their chemotherapy. Uh, and so that means they have, you know, four hours a week of school, probably at best, and they have all of this downtime during the week. Now, oftentimes they are resting and they are, you know, uh, spending time with family because the treatment can be, the symptom burden can be so tremendous that they do need a lot of time to rest. But I do often hear families say, I go in her room to give her lunch and she's on, you know, TikTok or whatever. And then I come back to bring her dinner and she's on Instagram. And so you do find that that behavior in clinic that once seemed sort of harmless and helpful even kind of moves into the home space and becomes this sort of consistent pattern of overdoing it. Um, so I have seen that in my practice. Is TikTok the worst of social media would you say it's very it's very controversial you know the the the, the biggest concern that I have with TikTok is that um, it is sort of a, a series of scrolling if you will right so I know that there are people that post things on TikTok um, most of the teens that I work with to my knowledge are not posting things on TikTok perhaps they are but they are more likely engaging in sort of watching these short reels and videos and really finding things that interest them but that can be sort of a rabbit hole. I've even had adults tell me that they've been on, they look up and they've been on TikTok for two and a half hours, scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. Mm -hmm. The problem with that is that that's not really offering you a meaningful social interaction. So it's sort of, in my mind, it almost defeats the purpose of social media because, again, if, we, if we're going with the argument that social media is about building connection and fostering relationship, TikTok really is the opposite of that. It's about finding cool videos and, you know, sort of scrolling endlessly. And because those videos are so stimulating, they're, they're designed to be short and exciting, 
you want more of them, which is why you look up and three hours have passed and you've been scrolling on TikTok. So I think of the platforms, I would say that that one is probably a little bit more risky in terms of losing time, losing meaningful time. Um, I, I do have more concerns about that one. And when our kids are, when they turn 15, is it more about guiding them? So, you know, those early adolescent years are really about, again, there's a lot of brain development happening. If you imagine fireworks, if you will, going on. And as they get older, they are developing a little bit more discernment and self-regulation. But truly, the brain is developing well into young adulthood. And so I don't know if there's like a hard stop age by which we say, okay, now it's you can do what you want on social media. I mean, obviously, if they're 18 and they're legally an adult, that, that there's other challenges that come. Mm-hmm. with that. But um, but I don't know that there's like a definitive hard age where you don't have to oversee them. But again, because the relationship is about trust, when you know your child's patterns, habits, behaviors, and you've been consistently sort of having a window into that, let's say they've been on social media for two years and they're now 15 and they've displayed good judgment and you've been able to kind of see that they are engaging in positive, you know, activities online, then maybe you do offer them a little bit more leeway. Um, Again, not to suddenly, you know, go in a different direction and start posting negative things, but you are able to see that, okay, I see that the judgment is developing. I see that sort of some of those critical thinking skills are developing, but also you're, you're also hopefully teaching them to see and practice and critique what they're seeing online so that they can start to determine, okay, this is something that is interesting and accurate, or this is something that is sort of inflammatory and inaccurate, and I don't want to focus my energy on that. And a lot of the people who are watching or going to TikTok and kids included may not realize that it's owned by the Chinese government. Is it is it important to say things like that or, or tell children why this is extra harmful? I think it's important in the sense that, you know, social media um, platforms and um, these spaces are, you know, monetary entities, right? And so these organizations, they, they benefit from sort of gathering data, if you will, about the things that you like, the things that you post, the things that you share. And so I do think that having a frank conversation with your kids about their relationship between those variables is important. Now, your typical 10-year-old is not going to really know what that means or probably care, right? But as they get older into their teen years, what you're helping them see is this sort of linear relationship between something that seems harmless and innocent on our phone and larger entities like, you know, government and political spaces because they they don't see those relationships and they've not been able to conceptualize that. So it really is a teaching opportunity to help them see that it's so much bigger than what they're seeing on their phone. Are we ready for a case? Sure, let's do it. Most weekends he spends his time in his room gaming and chatting with peers and friends online. When asked to come downstairs for dinner or other family time activities, the teen always yells, 10 more minutes, as parents knock on his room. When they continue to prompt him and sometimes open his bedroom door, he becomes irritable and combative, saying, I said 10 more minutes. Why are you always interrupting me when I'm busy? During dinner, your family has a no technology rule, which leaves the teen sullen, irritable, and slumped down in his chair, hardly engaging with the family. His parents have noticed that his algebra grades have dropped this term. 
So Dr. Robinson, what do you do? That is sort of a, a classic picture uh, of, of the signs, of the warning signs, of the red flags. So this is a teen that uh, has an abundance of access, which is true for most of our teens right nowadays, right? He's got multiple ways to kind of connect, um, even through the gaming system. Um, he is really overly sort of engaged. You mentioned like before break, before school, on the weekends. There's really not a time that he's not being directly stimulated by whatever he's seeing online. But because he's engaging so much, you can see there's some irritability that's developing there when he's not able to uh, engage in social media or in his with his technology. You can see that he's become isolated from his family. So he's sitting at the dinner table, sounds like with an attitude and sort of like, gosh, when is this going to be over so I can get back to my, my gaming system? Um, so that's an, that's an example of sort of, you know, him spending more time on social media than maybe you as parents have intended for him. Um, really the significant relationships in his life are becoming disrupted and his performance in school is being impaired. So these are all, I think, tremendous signs that this young person has been maybe overly engaging in social media and technology use. And I think that these parents would really benefit from having a hard conversation with him about what they're seeing and why there are concerns and what we can do about it. I think that's also great advice. I want to thank you so much, Crystal, for joining me here today and, and sharing your expertise and knowledge with us. What inspired you to work with children as a psychologist? Well, um, you know, I remember early in my doctoral training, I wasn't sure which population moved me the most. I, I knew very early on that I wanted to be a psychologist, but I never knew, I hadn't really thought about the specialty. And uh, when I went to grad school, one of the first experiences, clinical practicum trainings I did was with, um, with adults. And I thought, okay, I'm learning some things, the skills are developing, kind of the wheels are turning. But my second clinical training was in a children's hospital. And it was like the sky opened up for me in mm -hmm. that training. It, something clicked that just, I, I, can't even, it, it, I can't even explain it. it. The feeling that I felt watching these children, and it was, a, it was an inpatient unit. So these children were all admitted for various medical reasons. Some had cancer, some were there for rehab, some had G-tubes. Some had, you know, cerebral palsy, and they were there for services. But there was something about seeing those children still have joy and smile and be playful and, you know, giggle with their nurses and ride their tricycle in the hallway. There, there, it was just an aha moment for me. I said, this is where I need to be. This is where my heart is. There is just something to be said about the resilience of children, um, about the fact that, they can find joy, even in the scariest of places, even with some of the most horrible things that they've endured, even various forms of trauma or adverse childhood experiences. We see some beautiful resilience that can come out of that. And so it was that first clinical training. Again, I had just had that adult rotation, and I was like, meh. I mean, I wasn't super thrilled, but the, the second one was where uh, truly the sky opened for me, and, it, and that's where I realized that that's where I belonged, was working with children. That's really beautiful. It is such a joy getting to work with children. It is. You received your Psych D from Adler University in Chicago. Yes, I did. 
Did you love it there? I loved Chicago. Uh, it's just such a culturally diverse and rich city. Uh, it was really neat to experience snow for the first time as a Texan. I was very much looking forward to that and quickly burned out on it. <laughs> once I kind of had it once or twice, I was like, okay, I think I'm done now. Um, but it was a, it's a beautiful city. It's got so much rich history. Uh, and I enjoyed really being there because the, the doctoral program that I uh, was enrolled in is really a, a program that emphasizes social justice. And so their passion was about understanding the communities that we serve and being a voice for the voiceless. That is really sort of the essence of my doctoral training. So all of my clinical rotations were with underserved or at-risk youth in the community, youth that had been exposed to community violence, youth that were gang-involved, families that had children with multiple ACEs. I mean, just some of the you know, most disheartening, heartbreaking stories. I had the opportunity to be a part of those families' lives and to try to impact change. And that is such a privilege to me, to be able to hold space for a family that is has already had the world stacked up against them and then their child is, you know, they're told their child has a cancer diagnosis. To be able to align with that family and walk that journey with them, what a privilege. And that's really how I see it. That's how I saw it in school, and that's how I see it now. And we were talking before how we both lived in Chicago. I went to graduate school there, and the shock of going from Texas to Chicago. And you were talking about the, the wall air conditioner. Tell me about that. Yes. So, so uh, here in Texas, I'm sure there are you know places where people have window units, but uh, up until moving to Chicago, I had not experienced the window unit. And I remember going into my apartment. It was a tiny little apartment, and there was this there was this box in the window, and and my landlord said, "Oh yeah, this is your window unit," um, because you know normally you'd have to buy your own. And he was basically explaining that he was providing that as part of the rent, the leasing agreement. And I was so concerned about that window unit because I thought, is that how is that going to, you know, cool the entire apartment? <laughs> Are bugs going to come in through the window? You know, had all these concerns about it. So that there were many things. That was just one of many things that were a big adjustment in Chicago. But overall, it is really a place where I, I, I like to say that it's where I became a grown-up. It's where I really learned a lot of big lessons about life. It's truly a second home to me, so I'm, I'm grateful for the experience. And the wall unit did work. It worked beautifully. <laughs> in fact, it was too cold in the apartment sometimes. So, no, it worked perfectly. <laughs> and it has that nice hum that it is does. very uh, relaxing. <laughs> I remember that as a child. <laughs> Tell us, in, you know, on, here on Pediatrics Now, we like to promote uh, doing things outside of medicine. It's so important to have that in our lives in this high-stress, high-burnout career. Wh what do you like to do in your spare time? I really love hiking. Um, it has become, it, it was sort of a passion that I didn't know I had. I developed it during COVID, um, right? There's nothing else to do. We're all sort of in our, our, our quarters, if you will. Uh, and so I started checking out local parks in Texas. We have some of the most beautiful landscapes in Texas. It just yes. is breathtaking. So I would take these, you know, road trips up to my favorite park in Texas is Garner State Park. It's mm -hmm. like the most, just, just, if you've ever, if you've never been, you should go. Yes, my kids and I go there each summer. I love it. It's oh, gorgeous. Isn't it beautiful? Mm -hmm. So that's my favorite. So hiking is definitely kind of a favorite pastime. And I even like to just spend time at the local parks here in San Antonio. I find that it's a chance 
chance to kind of mentally reset. It's my Sunday morning routine, actually. So I go for a hike um, at one of the local parks, or if I want to make a day of it, I'll, I'll get up early and drive out. Um, so I enjoy that. I, I do still have some family in Austin, so I try to get back there as often as possible to see loved ones. Um, really family time, family and friend time. I have a, a group of friends here that I really, the word friend doesn't really capture what has developed between us. I mean, they really are family at this point, and they all have little ones now, and so being able to go to all those birthday parties and soccer games and, you know, uh, it just gives me so much joy. Uh, And so those are probably my two big pastimes is you can find me hiking on Sunday morning or Saturday afternoon, likely at a soccer field at at one of my uh, best friend's, you know, son's game. So and those I, are two things that I love to do. What I noticed, you didn't mention social media as a favorite pastime. <laughs> <laughs> well, I used to be on social media, and I had this, I found myself even deeply getting into it, particularly during grad school. I would really, you know, when I was feeling really stressed, I would log in. Or if I was procrastinating on writing my dissertation, I would log in. But then I found that that would perpetuate my procrastination. And so I've really, in my recent years, um, tried to focus more on those in-person relationships. I'm not saying not be on social media. I'm just saying that for me, where I find the greatest impact and joy is, is away from the phone. Before we go, Crystal, do you have a favorite quote you'd like to share or some parting advice? Um, I think that with anything that we do in life, whether it's, you know, dieting, exercise, whatever the thing is, we all have our, our things that we're trying to work on, right? Moderation is key. So there is nothing wrong with being on social media and enjoying those spaces and even, like I said, getting your news there or connecting with loved ones. But moderation is key. Uh, And that is something that I subscribe to in all aspects of my life. Dr. Crystal Robinson, thank you so much for being here today on Pediatrics Now. Thank you for having me. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Pediatrics Now. Click on the link for free credit if you're a practitioner. You can also email us with questions or episode ideas. That address is pediatricsnow at uthscsa.edu. We release a new episode every Friday. I'm Holly Wayment. I hope you can join us for our next episode. Thanks for listening.